it at least occurred to us to introduce Ken Starr and convince him we thought he was Ringo Starr. Or Bart Starr. When we get him on the, the phone. Bay Packers, so but, when you joined the Beatles, had you known these guys? And then he'd be uncomfortable. But we don't have Ringo Starr. The Star. Ice Bowl. How cold was it? We're going to talk to Ken Starr. Yeah, Ken Starr, is, uh, he served as the independent counsel investigating the Clinton administration from 1994 to 1999, including that unpleasantness involving Ms. Lewinsky. I remember that. With uh, the he, cigar? He has a... <clears throat> He has a book out now, <laughs> after all these years, Contempt, a memoir of the Clinton investigation. And Kenneth Starr joins us now. Mr. Starr, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Oh, it's our pleasure. You. Yeah, we've been looking forward to chatting. Uh, uh, first, it's it's such a cliche of a question, um, but I, I really want to start here. Why the book after... Uh, the significant <laughs> amount of time that's that's passed. I mean, I've been enjoying the hell out of it. That's not a criticism. <laughs> We're just curious. Yeah. Well, uh, I wasn't anxious to write the book. I'd been encouraged to write the book, but I was a busy guy. I was uh, dean of the Pepperdine Law School. I was president of Baylor University. And then when that uh, tour of duty uh, in or tours of duty, um, I started writing my book on Baylor University called Bear Country, the uh, the Baylor Story. And I was just about to finish that in November of 2016 when guess who lost the election? So huh. it was kind of a, a signal all clear that, look, Ken, you're not getting any younger. So if you're going to ever write such a book, you better do it now, kind of a now or never. So I started working on the book in early 2017, and there you have it. So yeah. thanks for uh, Thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking about the book. I well, appreciate it. It ended up being more important to uh, to everybody than you probably realized at the time. I mean, because we, 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 you know, it's a glimpse into what's going on now. But you investigated the Clintons for five years, 94 to 99. you got to know an awful lot about the Clintons. Yeah, for better, for worse. Obviously, they're a very talented couple, but a deeply flawed couple. I think everyone knows a lot about the flaws of uh, Bill Clinton, the first president of the United States and our long and uh, glorious history to have been held in contempt by a United States District Court judge who was the chief judge of the court in Little Rock. And then I think they both conducted themselves with contempt for the rule of law. And that's uh, uh, not good in a country that we lift up as ruled by law and not by men or women, as the case may be. So, yeah, I, I felt compelled to tell the sort of untold stories. Some of us in the public record, but so much of it is not, including our very serious consideration of submitting to the grand jury in Little Rock, Arkansas, a proposed indictment of Hillary Rodham Clinton. People just don't know that part of the story. I thought it was important to tell it. Well, having read uh, substantial chunks of the book, I know the the use of the term contempt in the title is not like technical contempt of court. You're talking about being contemptuous. Tell us about Hillary as a witness. Hillary as a witness, as I recount uh, in the book, was, in my judgment, my opinion, she was making a mockery of the rule of law. In contrast to Bill, who, at least to President Clinton, who at least seemed to be making the effort to be responsive to our questions during the pre-Lewinsky course of the investigation, as I recount, she was just, uh, her, her demeanor, uh, her answers, the constant, I don't recall, not that I recall, but she said that, and we all 
don't recall everything that happened to us. That goes without saying. We're just human beings. But the way she phrased her, not that I recall, was robotic, mechanical, and unbelievable. She became a non-credible witness, and that was part of our reason for really carefully evaluating do we want to go forward with an indictment? Now, in fairness to Mrs. Clinton, to Hillary, we decided we did not have sufficient evidence to meet Justice Department standards to ethically present that, that indictment. But the point is, we felt that she had committed offenses, uh, crimes uh, in Arkansas, uh, and we felt that her feigned memory loss was so colossal that it was simply beyond belief. No one can forget, if especially some of the things that uh, she purported not to remember were just non-credible. So I, I don't know how much you want to psychoanalyze the Clintons, but you'd know as much about them as, as practically anybody. Um, are they people that grew up, two people that grew up modestly, got into power and got corrupted? Or do you think they were that kind of people to start with that they thought the rules didn't apply to them? I don't think they started out that way. I think in Hillary's situation, as I say in the book, and I think we just missed this in the campaign. I don't know why, but I, I don't remember. I wasn't following every single day. But as I recount in the book and trying to understand the Clintons now these many years later, I felt it was very illuminating that Hillary, uh, a, a conservative Midwestern young lady, you know, Goldwater girl and all that, goes to Wellesley, uh, a very liberal, very fine institution, to be sure, but a very liberal institution uh, in Massachusetts. And who does she fall in love with ideologically, philosophically, but Saul Alinsky, author of The Rule for Radicals. And one of the rules is destroy the enemy, right? Destroy your opponents. Uh, It's so far removed from the Judeo-Christian values of building community, loving one another, and so forth. And I think, by the way, we're seeing rules for radicals being played out uh, right here and now. With respect to to Bill, I think the system did end up, uh, the system of politics in Arkansas, where, and this is where the founding fathers of America's Constitution were so wise, there need to be checks and balances. As was said long ago, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think we had that story with Bill Clinton, as one federal judge said to me in Arkansas, said privately, no United States attorney's office, whether Republican or Democrat, goes chasing after important people in this state. Well, that means lawlessness could just be, what shall I say, could carry on without checks and balances. Well, let's talk about independent counsels in general, independent prosecutors, because obviously you went from the Whitewater deal, which was an incredibly suspicious, odd uh, investment deal in which the the Clintons, if I'm correct, uh, had a 50 percent stake having invested nothing. Um but then you had, uh, did you guys get into the cattle futures? Doesn't really matter. But it ended up yeah. with sexual harassment and depositions lying under yeah. oath, and that was the culmination of it. So what do you think about the independent counsel statutes in general? Right, and it's one of the things I try to explain in the book, that there do need to be these checks and balances, as, as we just discussed. But I think the independent counsel statute was the wrong way to go because the decision to seek the appointment of independent counsel remain with the attorney general. And by the way, that happened with Attorney General Janet Reno 
serving under President Clinton with respect to the Monica Lewinsky phase of the investigation. But that having been said, Janet Reno, now Jeff Sessions, uh, gets to appoint the special counsel. Janet Reno did not. And she, I don't think, liked the fact that the special division of the U.S. Court of Appeals, which was set up under this statute, had the appointing authority. And frankly, I didn't either. When I was serving as a, a chief of staff to the Attorney General of the United States in the Reagan administration, we testified, and I, I tell this story as well, through our number three officer in the Justice Department, a guy named Rudy Giuliani, which I think is a guy we've, who's a guy we've heard of, right? And Rudy testifies for the, both the House and the Senate that we think the law is actually unconstitutional as violating separation of powers in our separated power system and violating entrenching on the powers of the president and the executive branch, et cetera. But, you know, the Supreme Court in the late 1980s upheld the statute. Congress kept reauthorizing it. But we just felt, gosh, that's the wrong way to go as a matter of policy, but also, as frankly, as we viewed it as a matter of constitutional law. But I do think there needs to be some kind of checking mechanism. I think we have, we're in the right place now with the special counsel regulations under which Bob Mueller was appointed. Well, just as a quick, for instance, would you be shocked or, or outraged or think it was a bad thing if Robert Mueller comes out in a few months and says, look, we've got uh, Trump on tax evasion in 1991 or, you know, he's had some suspicious tenants in the uh, late 80s. We think he was laundering Russian money. I mean, where would that leave us? I th- well, I think that would be very far afield from the reason Bob Mueller, who I respect greatly, I served with him under uh, President Bush 41. Uh, in the Justice Department. He was head of the criminal division, and I worked with him. He was a person of honor and integrity. I think he still is. But if if that were the news, so I'm going to deal with that, that hypothetical and say I think the American people would really be taken aback uh, because he was appointed in May of last year, you know, basically a year and a half ago, to determine whether there was collusion with the Russians in the President Trump successful presidential campaign. So I think it would raise a whole bunch of questions. But here's the check and the balance. If he returned that kind of, the grand jury under his leadership, returned that kind of indictment, what we know is he would have had the permission of senior officials in the Justice Department, namely Rod Rosenstein, who's the acting attorney general. So there is a check. You might disagree, but there is a check. He couldn't just go there. He, Bob Mueller, couldn't just say, I'm not going to look at the president's taxes. He would have had to have had authorization from someone who was nominated by this president and confirmed by the Senate, namely Rod Rosenstein. Did you personally talk to Monica Lewinsky asking her questions about what happened back in the day? No, I didn't. And I deliberately did not uh, because I wanted professional career prosecutors to do that questioning. And that's the way it was done, and I wanted it to be done, it being the questioning, with the advice and counsel. This is another one of the checks and balances that I tried to put into place. As I describe in the book, we recruited the hero, one of the heroes from Watergate, from the Democrat side of the aisle, Sam Dash, who had been chief counsel to Senator Sam Irvin, Democrat, North Carolina, the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Watergate. So I wanted him there. So that no one could fairly say they said it, but it was not fair, it wasn't right, but that's politics. 
that the investigation, including the Lewinsky phase of the investigation, was honorable, was being conducted consistent with Justice Department policies, practices, and norms. So I deliberately stayed on the sidelines, but I tell the story of setting up my late mother-in-law's apartment in New York where we had the vetting when finally Monica fired her very horrible criminal defense lawyer who just made our lives miserable and I think made Monica's life miserable for five months. She hires two very skilled uh, criminal defense lawyers in Washington, D.C. I knew them. I respected them. Good people, honorable people. And we had an immunity deal for Monica within a matter of a very few weeks. So the whole nation was put through misery uh, and the White House, the Congress, everyone was put through this misery month after month, in part because Monica had a really bad criminal defense lawyer who wasn't even a criminal defense lawyer. Let's talk a little bit about character assassination. Maybe we'll talk a lot about character assassination. Monica Lewinsky, famously the target of the Clinton uh, spin machine. We can talk about that. You yourself have been demonized since that time. And I just happened to flip to, I was looking for reviews of the book, and Esquire magazine said there is no less excusable human being walking on the public stage than Kenneth Starr. They go on to describe (laughs) you in some uncharitable terms that are, you know, well, I suppose I could say them, but uh, I won't. Um, And then uh, perhaps you've heard the name Brett Kavanaugh, I believe. He worked for you once upon a time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Why don't we start with Monica? What was it like to see her character being assassinated as you you and your people knew her a lot better than, you know, the headlines? Right. Well, I, I was distressed for her. I was still just immensely, as we all were in the investigation, Monica, come home. We don't want to harm you. We don't mean you harm. Why don't you just come on board and start cooperating with the investigation? And I thought that when the White House started uh, calling her things stalker, narcissist, different kinds of characterizations that were extremely unflattering, that she would say, okay, if that's the way the president is going to act toward me, uh, he's broken the bonds of trust, and so I'm going to cooperate with the investigation. I'm in harm's way because I committed perjury. She knew that. She had committed perjury. That's called a crime. Uh, And so had Bill Clinton. So as to people who, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, what no one has been able successfully to refute is the fact that Bill Clinton the president of the United States set out knowingly, intentionally, purposefully on a course to commit perjury, to obstruct justice and the like. And so Esquire can say whatever they want to. I say, look at what Chief Judge Susan Weber Wright said. This man is president of the United States, has conducted himself in such a way that he deserves to be held and hereby is being held in contempt of court. Did you at ever at any point think, I can't believe that this is where we are? Because while, you know, lying under oath is lying under oath, and and I understand the argument how you can't have, well, you can't let anybody get away with it, um, or yeah. our whole system falls yeah. apart. But did you at ever at any point think, God, we're here, he's lying about whether or not he had an affair? Of course he lied about that. Yes. Well, it's it just come on. Just and, and he was being, he being the president, was being urged by members of his own party. Look, we know you lied under oath in the civil deposition of the Paula Corbin Jones case. That was really bad. But don't make it immensely worse by lying under oath to a duly authorized federal grand jury. 
So our friends at Esquire magazine need to go back and take maybe a page of history rather than a page of politics and be reminded that the investigation into the president's crimes was authorized by Janet Reno, again, the uh, attorney general. She was honest and honorable. I have lots of criticisms for her conduct later in the investigation, trying to erode confidence uh, in, in, in our work, taking the side of the White House in ways that I thought were just very, very wrong, virtually mean-spirited. But when it began, when the Monica Lewinsky phase began, Janet Reno stood up and said, this is serious. This has to be investigated. She, Janet Reno, is the one who went to the special division and said, we need to expand uh, Ken Starr's uh, jurisdiction to include this inquiry into whether Monica Lewinsky and others were committing this crime, these crimes, and we know they did. Because he, That's because the, she felt that the president lying about the affair was a big enough deal that look, we've got to, uh, we've got to follow this. Yeah, she did. The fact that it was about an affair is ultimately beside the point, because this was a sexual harassment lawsuit. This isn't telling a fib to your neighbor, your your spouse, or whomever. This is you've been sued for your conduct, Mr. President, when you were the governor of the state of Arkansas by an employee, a former employee at the time of the Arkansas state government. We call it sexual harassment. It's a violation, potentially, of the civil rights laws of the United States. And the Supreme Court of the United States said, Mr. President, in the Clinton versus Jones decision, nine to nothing, you can't get a timeout from facing this civil lawsuit. He should have settled it. If he had settled the case, 90% plus of civil litigation in the United States, state and federal, gets settled. He chose the foolhardy course. He had, it's called hubris. He had such confidence in his ability to communicate that he felt he could commit perjury and obstruct justice and get away with it. And he was held to account. You know, it's funny, that whole depends on what the definition of is is, to me was a brilliant lawyerism. He gets mocked for that, but he was talking about Because past... politically, it's so unbelievably mockable. <laughs> right. He was talking about past tense, present tense, but he was so convinced of his um, his brilliance, and there's a fair amount there, that he thought he could thread that needle, which is something else. But hey, let's let's talk a little bit, and we can approach this any way you want, of one of your protégés at the time, Brett Kavanaugh. I don't know if you've heard, Mr. Starr. He's going to be on the Supreme Court, um, and and he has uh, been quoted and misquoted uh, on the topic of uh, can the president be shielded from civil lawsuits, prosecution? Can we live in a world where the president's being sued every 10 minutes? Having been through what you've been through, what's your point of view on that? I do believe that the president of the United States, as is any person, uh, is subject to uh, indictment. Uh, we don't want to see that, obviously. We want to, I'll, I'll say, as someone who loves his country, I want my president to succeed uh, and to be able to do his or her job, as the case may be. But at the same time, I want a system in which the president is subject to law and the rule of, of law. So I've always been of that view. I continue to be of that view. But what Judge Kavanaugh, now Justice Kavanaugh, I'm very happy about that and very thankful that it's had a happy conclusion in the midst of, of this this horrible process, just horrible, over the past several uh, weeks. But Judge Kavanaugh 
by virtue of his service uh, in the executive branches under President Bush uh, 43, uh, and then reflecting on all this as a judge, has written that Congress should take a look at these issues of the president's being subjected to civil lawsuits, possibly to criminal indictments and so forth. And so <laughs> although that issue has long since faded into the history of this stormy confirmation process. All Judge Kavanaugh was saying, and I read his Minnesota Law Review article, is these are important issues. Congress should take a look at them and perhaps give the president of the United States a timeout. He never suggested that the Supreme Court was wrong, the unanimous Supreme Court was wrong in deciding in Clinton versus Jones that our president is subject to the rule of law, even a civil lawsuit. Which included Clinton appointees at the time, didn't it? Exactly. I mean, I think that's such a great point, and that point is sometimes lost as well, that both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer are very respected members of the court, whether you agree with this decision or not. They all came together, and who wrote the opinion? John Paul Stevens, who put himself into the debate over uh, now Justice Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation. And in very strong language, respectful of the presidency, John Paul Stevens, again, the opinion joined by Ruth Ginsburg and Steve Breyer said, the president is subject to the rule of law. But man, these things really uh, eat up a lot of the, um, uh, the energy for following politics and anything getting done uh, with Clinton and now with, uh, with Trump. I mean, that, 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 that is a problem for just functioning as a society. It, it really is, and there's no question. It is a distraction. It's a diversion of the president's time and attention. I remember there's a very high water mark during the, the uh, ongoing Mueller investigation when the president was negotiating with North Korea and that process. So the presidency, as someone well put it, is a 24-7 job, right? Uh, LBJ, I, I just described this in the book said, seldom did I go to sleep at night before 1 or 2 a.m. and then I was up at 6 a.m. You know, that's, and, and it wasn't that he was out on the golf course. I don't think LBJ played golf. The point is, it's a very demanding, uniquely demanding job. I hope we all want our president to succeed, again, whether we agree or disagree. So I understand the point of view that these kinds of lawsuits or criminal investigations are very distracting. They're draining on the presidency. But when you consider the alternative, we don't want our country to be, as it were, a third world country, a so-called banana republic, where the king is above all and doesn't have to respond to the law. That's not America. There's literally nobody in the world that would have a better idea of what Robert Mueller is going through than you. Um, so what do you think he's going through right now? Where, where is he in the investigation? <laughs> Well, we don't know. I must say this. Uh, the indictments, going back to the reason he was appointed, the indictments that were returned in the summer against the 11 Russian individuals and the two Russian organizations and the story that those indictments tell, those are stories that needed to be told to the American people. And this is where I wish the president just would just say, yeah, the Russians performed extremely badly. They did it. Forget Vladimir Putin lying through his teeth. Read those indictments. And, and I realize they're indictments and there's a presumption of innocence. But the granularity of the facts of those Russian individuals and organizations, 
And I think that's a great public service. Now, will those uh, ever go to trial? Will we ever be able to extradite those 11 individuals, the people who run the two Russian organizations and so forth that tried to come in and pollute our politics and to get us all mad at one another? And I guess they succeeded in that. Uh, one, one example of that in the and one of the two indictments, it tells the story of on the same day in New York, in New York City, these Russian uh, thugs financed both a pro-Trump rally and an anti-Trump rally. Same town, New York City, same day, taking opposite sides. So that just tells you that the evil that comes out of the Kremlin and the Kremlin's uh, thugs who go around and murder people uh, in Salisbury, uh, England, and so forth. This is a really evil regime. And I think that the more that uh, Bob Mueller focuses on that, the better it is for our country. So I wish him well. We all want him to get through with it. But his service thus far is recounted by the record, the, the jury verdict convicting Paul Manafort. And you saw the comments of one of the jurors in the Paul Manafort trial who said, I voted for President Trump. This wasn't politics. But there was just overwhelming evidence of Paul Manafort's uh, guilt. Now he's cooperating with the investigation. So I hope that Bob will continue the course, but wind it up as quickly as he can, consistent with uh, law, ethics, and his professionalism. So that bit of patriotism by that juror notwithstanding, uh, Jack and I spend a lot of time shaking our heads in disbelief at the not only the viciousness of discourse right now, but how there are completely separate uh, pipelines of information and visions and conversations going on in America. As a guy with a pretty solid grasp of history, um, is there turning the corner? Is there turning back the clock for us? Will we learn? Will we relearn that we're all on the same side? We just have disagreements. Where do you see this headed? Well, absent some terrible uh, crisis, some terrible attack on our country, I think we're going to continue going through a really rough patch. And when you see the election of people who proudly call themselves progressive socialists, I think the divide is increasing in terms of what does it mean to uh, to be an American? What does it mean in terms of a sensible governmental policy? But as long as we can try, this is where I think we're failing, to treat one another with respect. And I've said, uh, I've said in, in an editorial in the Washington Post over a year ago, I wish the president would cut it out. Tweet to your heart's content, but tweet with greater dignity. Don't attack John McCain. Don't attack Jeff Sessions. But uh, I think both sides of the aisle uh, uh, have had too much uh, acrimony uh, for our good, and I hope that will calm down. I don't think that we will come to some great consensus in terms of what is the correct public policy on uh, any number uh, of issues, building the wall tax cuts and so forth. Now, I personally approve of much of what the president has done. I've got re real reservations about his approach to immigration. I, I live in Texas. I just have a different outlook uh, uh, on it. I agree that immigration's got to be orderly. But whether I agreed or disagreed with the president, I want my president to succeed. And I would like people to be a little bit more respectful. I don't remember how the uh, Star report came out. I remember reading chunks of it, but what will the Mueller report look like? Will we get the news on a Friday that he's done and it will be released and we'll all get to read a thousand pages? Or how, how is that process going to be? <laughs> well, the very good news is, in contrast to the Independent Counsel statute, which put a thumb on the scales 
pointing toward impeachment. Can you imagine a law that says we want you, but this was the law of the land for 21 years. It was the law under which I operated. That when you find independent counsel, substantial and credible information that an impeachable offense may have been committed, you send that to the House of Representatives. There's no counterpart to that happily, thankfully, in the regulations of the Justice Department under which Bob Mueller operates. And I think that's a huge improvement. So to answer your question, uh, we don't know exactly what form the report will take, but it will be a report from the Justice Department. It will not be a report from an independent counsel operating separately from the Justice Department that then is sent to the House of Representatives for the House of Representatives to work with. We are in, I think, a much better, much healthier case. But I think we will have a report of some kind made available to the public in the judgment and the discretion of the Deputy Attorney General, not of Bob Mueller just standing alone. Final question. I'm thinking of getting into cattle futures. Do you have any advice for me? (laughs) Yeah, read the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) See, that's just, (laughs) that was uh, Hillary's remarkable, uh, and my word, you would have to be, uh, uh, what shall I say, eighth grade mentality to be so gullible as to accept that obvious lie, uh, because we now, uh, a fairly elementary understanding of the commodities market meant someone got hosed, right? To turn that $1,000 into $100,000 meant that there were uh, sales, purchases at the beginning of the day, sales at the end of the day, but those sales at the end of the day, if, if, if there were losses, and there were surely losses, were credited to someone's account, or somebody was a loser in order for Hillary to become a big winner. But as I reviewed in preparing the book, the so-called pink press conference, where she explained all that, everybody said, well, I guess that's it. We all need to read the Wall Street Journal, but just, uh, frankly, another form of uh, Hillary's mendacity. Mendacity. Yeah, indeed. Ken Starr, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a million. It's great uh, to talk. I hope we can do it again sometime. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. you. Yeah, I've read enough of the book and seen enough of his interviews. He thinks Hillary is just a uh, an out-and-out liar. She's a shark. She'll just stand yeah. up there and lie to anybody. Bill, not quite the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Hillary, utterly contemptuous of anyone who would take her on. Bill Moore, just a con man. Um, Clean up messes. Yeah, that's and con man's a bad description. Just a guy so convinced of his own brilliance that he thought he could get out of anything. And, and he po- it makes the point in the book, actually, that if Bill had said to Paula Jones, you know what, I probably did come on too strong. I'm sorry, here's a check. Come on too strong. I unzipped my pants and said, kiss it. <laughs> that's too strong. <laughs> Are you saying that's not too strong? Jack thinks that's not too strong. Well, no, if he'd said, you know what, I did. I, I was terrible. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Here's a check for your, your, your suffering and discomfort. That would have been it. Sure, especially in that era, pre the way the media worked and before Me Too and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it would have worked. I don't think it would now. Final Um, note, uh, or not final note, Esquire referred to Kenneth Starr as the bed-sniffing yahoo who led the great penis chase in 1998. Yeah, see, I I understand Ken Starr's a a very religious, very uh, straight arrow. You don't have to be a religious straight arrow, though, to, to say, look, you're either going to say you, you can't lie under oath or, or if you start making exceptions, where does that go? Mm-hmm. I understand that argument. 
and I suppose he can't say this out loud. Maybe he doesn't ever even think it, but there, there was nothing good in the big scope of history for chasing that as far as we did over that. To me. Right. Right. Well, yeah. And like so many things in life, it took several players doing exactly the wrong thing and or the raw, the law being written badly, as, as Mr. Starr was pointing out, that, um, yeah, we shouldn't have ended up there. It's bad for the presidency. It's bad for the country. The whole impeachment thing was a gigantic waste of time and, and energy. At the same time, I get how we got there. Right. I don't blame Kenneth Starr And for if it. you've been investigating a couple for five years and you just saw them cheating here and there and just constantly. Yeah. constantly getting over you'd you'd have a little uh you'd have a little ill will built up to want to finally nail him on something but mm-hmm. again looking at it from 30,000 feet the great scope of history I'm not I don't think it was a good a good place we ended up taking that clear to the end clear to the end zone the whole thing oh my god anybody Seems feel ridiculous like chanting lock her up lock her up um, <laughs> I know I do uh one final thing so the law has changed so I I understand why he'd want to point this out he had no choice the way the law was written. If he thought there was something that could be a peach, an impeachable offense, he had to present it as mm-hmm. that. Yeah, It's not that way now. So Mueller will come up with this report, give it to the Judiciary Committee, and say, here you go. Mm-hmm. What they do with it? Well, we've seen how bipartisan they are yeah. in recent weeks. Boy. But, uh, you know, the way that comes out to us from there, who knows? And it's worth pointing out, Kavanaugh, that worked with the star at the time, Judge Kavanaugh, said coming out of it roughly what Ken Starr did. This law is not right. Oh, my God. So we're going to have, Mueller's going to hand that to him someday, and you're going to have Cory Booker with that report and Lindsey Graham with that report. And the two old people, where's my juice? Oh, uh, no. Grassley Come and on, Feinstein trying to figure out. Un- but, unfortunate. Uh, yeah, so I don't The whole thing's got to be put out because you just can't have Cory Booker releasing his chunk and Lindsey Graham putting out his chunk. I'm hoping it's clear it's, enough in its conclusions it's that gonna that's going to be, be news. I don't think it will be. No. I think it's going to be very complicated tax stuff. Oh, what? That's what I think it's going to no, be. No, no. I think not it's going to be really no. complicated tax stuff. No. I hope not. I He's hope not going to get permission I from Rosenstein. Really Stein. hope Stein. Well, we'll see. Someday, maybe. Yeah. If God willing, we're there for the report and... Still uh, north of the dirt or above the daisies and not pushing. As long as we're not dead is what I'm driving at. And thus ends another one of our podcasts. Go to Test Pattern. Boop.